welcome to another episode of Emerging Environments. Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Marnie Isaac. Marnie is a professor at the University of Toronto Scarborough and a Canada Research Chair in Agroecosystems and Development. Marnie conducts interdisciplinary research on plant strategies and the nutrient economy of agroecosystems. Her lab investigates practices that improve the efficiency of nutrient cycles, optimize plant soil interactions, and promote landscape scale services in low input agriculture and agroforestry systems. She draws from mechanistic ecological theory to gain insight into the principles that govern the structure and function of biologically complex agroecosystems. In addition to this type of biophysical analysis, Marnie also investigates innovation in social agroecological systems, particularly the role of informal agrarian networks in agroecosystem management. In our chat with Marnie, we explore the fundamentals of agroecology, including a walk through the multiple scales and topics that agroecology is concerned with, from the small scale dynamics that take place at the root soil interface to the assessment of biodiversity and landscape optimization for intercropping, and also the social and governance systems that determine how agroecosystems are created, maintained, and adapted through time. To explore these different topics, Marnie drew from the varied geographical locations that her research has taken her, including Costa Rica, Ghana, France, and recently also into the world of urban ecology, considering the potential for green roof ecosystems to contribute to urban agricultural productivity. Marnie is a true interdisciplinary scientist, and it was a pleasure to explore the diversity of her research interests. So with that, we hope you enjoy our chat with Marnie Isaac. So Marnie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Usually before we get into talking about, you know, research and science and all that kind of stuff, we love to hear about our guests kind of personal journey. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about maybe where you grew up, how you got interested in science, biology, and then, you know, whether you saw this as a career for yourself when you were a young child. Yeah, thanks for that question. And the answer is no, I didn't see this as a career for myself. <laughs> I had a very meandering path to arrive here, but uh, very happy I did. Um, yeah, I'm born and raised in New Brunswick uh, in the Maritimes. And I come from this really large, extended uh, Lebanese family. And yeah, so I kind of grew up like in an antique shop in St. John, New Brunswick. And didn't have a lot of exposure to people who went to university or anything like that, but really developed an interest in the environment early on. Probably that developed just from my time in nature in New Brunswick, but also um, I really, I don't know if you guys know about the Irvings, but there's this big conglomerate family in New Brunswick. Sure. And, yeah, I, I learned at an early age about the kind of monopoly they had on the media in New Brunswick and on mm-hmm. uh, the resources. And so that experience with them really sparked my interest in activism. So I, I was first started out as an environmental activist and actually got sued once when I was 18 and lots of, 
sorted history oh, wow. there, but, um, but that really inspired me to actually go into the sciences. So I actually went from activism into the sciences and it's interesting mm-hmm. now I'm kind of finding my way back to activism in mm. my older years. But so I went to the university of Guelph for their environmental science program, partly out of interest, partly to get out of New Brunswick <laughs> <laughs> my whole childhood and high school years. Yeah. And then that led one thing to another. I took a lot of jobs in between. It took me seven years to finish my undergrad. So Mm -hmm. any of you out there who are taking your time, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) I became a forest firefighter. I traveled a lot. I took a lot of years off and all of that really kept inspiring me to go back to the sciences. So every time I left, I went to go back and learn more. And that led me to a master's, um, which I actually did in Ghana, West Africa. And uh, that's been a 20-year-long collaboration there now. That started way back in my master's. Oh, wow. And then wound up in Toronto for my PhD as a musician, not as an academic. Um, <laughs> I was playing in a band and I was in Toronto and then I, I needed a job. So I was working in a lab and that rolled into a PhD program. And so, okay. yeah, that's, and then voila, here I am. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's super interesting. And so how did you kind of narrow in on your field of study for your PhD? Was there something that kind of really inspired you that got you interested in the biological sciences specifically or? Yeah, for sure. So I was really, I had this a few years where I was like really interested in um, ethnoecology, which is really thinking about human uses of plants. And so I did a lot of that kind of work around botany and around people, plant interactions. And that was sort of a natural migration into thinking about agriculture. And so I really came from it from an agroforestry perspective. So I'd done a lot of work with trees. Mm -hmm. And so it made a lot of sense for me to really spend my time thinking about you know, I do a lot of work on, I'm trained soil scientist, plant physiologist, biogeochemist, but I applied most of those ideas to thinking about um, the role of diversification in agricultural systems. And so that's sort of the trajectory I took. And so really honed my skills on thinking about the role of uh, plant diversity in nutrient cycles in various types of agricultural systems. And that's really Mm -hmm. still where I work today. Okay. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the areas of your research program and some of the specific locations that you're working in and systems that you, um, that you explore. For sure. So I guess my research program has really evolved to, you know, I'd say we have about three or four axes of investigation that we do in my Mm -hmm. research group, but they all really broadly focus on the role of biodiversity in agricultural systems. So we do this from everything from like large scale studies of functional diversity in agricultural systems, all the way down to like detailed studies on root trait coordination between crops and organic agriculture. So for a lot of different scales. Um, But we also really think politically and laterally about these issues as well. So our our group still continues to carve out um, transdisciplinary research on the social processes that lead to or inhibit change in Mm -hmm. practices and the adoption of agrobiodiversity. So as I'm sure the two of you are aware, there's been a really substantial expansion in the field of agroecology in the last 20 years as a real strategy for thinking about and conceptualizing how to transform agricultural systems away from industrialized agriculture towards more sustainable systems. Mm -hmm. And so agroecology is really the scientific discipline on farm practice and a social movement 
that really gives mm-hmm. us a lens mm-hmm. to sort of critique these environmental issues surrounding agriculture. And so this area of agroecology obviously really speaks to me in the work we do because it is very transdisciplinary, it's very political, but it's also very science-based. And so that's what we really work on in my, in my lab. And we do this in agroforestry systems, as I mentioned, so where we grow trees in agricultural systems. And that, as I mentioned, was a long-term collaboration in Ghana, West Africa, mm-hmm. as well as a more recent one about a decade-long uh, collaboration with Katier in Costa Rica. And then more recently, working in organic agricultural systems in Canada. So working with participatory plant breeding programs across Canada and organic farmers, uh, as well as here in Southern Ontario, looking at the role of diversification in agricultural systems. Mm -hmm. And so, Marnie, you use the term agrobiodiversity in in your answers there. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that means sort of in in a practical or applied sense? Yeah, for sure. It's a... It's a term that I think has um, picked up some speed recently. Like you see it more and more, but I, I think you're actually right to ask that. It's often not like fully clearly defined. I like to think about agrobiodiversity in three ways. So you can think about it like the targeted biodiversity on a farm. So whether we're talking about multiple varieties of a crop, so like genetic diversity, um, intercropping, so multiple crops grown together. So that's really like a targeted biodiversity. That's the one that we mostly work on. Mm. Then there's associated biodiversity. And so this is the biodiversity that's included on a farm that's not for production. So this would be like shade trees, anyone drinking shade grown coffee or shade grown cocoa, that's associated biodiversity. So these don't really provide a product per se, but they provide a function on the farm. In a Canadian system, these would be things like shelter belts and hedgerows. So on the edges of farms where we can find a lot of biodiversity. And probably more recently in that associated biodiversity type of agrobiodiversity, we're getting more and more work done on things like microbial diversity and pollinator diversity. So other trophic levels and how they contribute to diversity. And then the third way I like to think about agrobiodiversity is at the landscape scale. So landscape diversity. So on a farm, they can have multiple types of production. And this is the area I've actually been exploring most recently and even in the last few weeks as a really recent area of our research is we're actually thinking more and more about earthworks and how we can restore the landscape to increase the biodiversity on a farm. So a lot of ways we've done irrigation in Southern Ontario landscape has been to sort of flatten the land. And so now we're thinking about agrobiodiversity and how it intersects with the shape of the land. And so working with earthworks to uh, sort of restore these types of land features that can contribute more to agrobiodiversity. So I'd really say that the fun area now is to think about how these different types of biodiversity interact. And that's uh, one of the areas that we're mostly interested in. Mm -hmm. Focusing in on Canada for a second, do you have a sense of what the manifestation of those different types of biodiversity has, has trended like through, you know, maybe the past couple of decades in Canada? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, without being too cynical, um, what we call Canada since settler colonialism has really focused on a yield maximization model of agriculture. So monoculture agriculture, 
you know, which has destroyed a lot of the land. And uh, while there's been a lot of benefits for yields, we are now dealing with the environmental repercussions of this approach to agriculture. And I think everybody would agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's just not very resilient to the impending, you know, global um, environmental catastrophes that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the Canadian agricultural landscape from that type of perspective, it's uh, often a sort of industrialized model where we can find remnants of diversity in the Canadian system in are things like in woodlots and hedgerows and shelter belts. So mm -hmm. I find this really fascinating because you can drive through Southern Ontario and you'll still see these remnant patches of forests and agricultural fields. And so that's um, sort of strongholds of biodiversity in the, for instance, in the Southern Ontario landscape. More and more though, even, you know, conventional farmers are more interested in cover cropping, which contributes a new element of biodiversity into an agricultural field. So in the Canadian system, I would say these types of biodiversity are just small tweaks that are happening. There's no major transformations that are mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. but you can see these small tweaks starting, starting to occur. Mm -hmm. You know, and the farmers that are doing these changes, you know, they're the real stewards of the land. And they're the ones that should be recognized for the work that they're doing for this type of conservation. Um, and so more and more, there's calls for uh, recognizing, incentivizing farmers who are already making these changes on their land. Mm -hmm. Are there policies in place or incentives that encourage farmers to make those small tweaks, maybe towards some sort of larger transformation? Yeah, um, there are. I mean, I can talk probably more broadly from a kind of global perspective. And the reason I'll do that is because um, we've just recently reviewed a lot of this. We have one of these grants called a SISINC. I don't know if you've heard of these or these social ecological synthesis network grants where you pull together a bunch of people doing research on a similar topic and you merge your data sets. And so we have a big one right now on agrobiodiversity and livelihoods. So we have data sets from all over the world, from farms all over the world, where we have data on agrobiodiversity and then um, social economic outcomes. So what are the links between agrobiodiversity and these outcomes around farmer well-being and social economic outcomes? What's nice about this approach, it's not really a full meta-analysis. It's actually really small-scale studies done all over the world. And we're looking for trends within these sort of smaller relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when we pooled all of these studies together, so I think about 15 different studies covering about 3,000 different farms all over the world, we can start to see some of these trends in the relationship between agrobiodiversity and these outcomes. And then what are the policies to lead to these? So of course, not no one size fits all in these trends. Recent work um, from California, one of these uh, uh, colleagues who's contributed data, really shows that to increase adoption of diversification practices on large farms really requires a mix of the pull from incentives and the push of regulatory mandates. Mm -hmm. So you need both together, and particularly on large farms. Our recent synthesis from a decade of research in Ghana and thinking about agro-biodiversity adoption in Ghana really shows that incentivizing non-crop diversification can have these positive cascading effects on adoption patterns beyond the initial farm. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see these trends about scaling out and the relationship between these sort of incentive mechanisms pulling farms in one direction and regulatory mechanisms pushing those farms in one direction. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like you need kind of a mix of everything in order to get um, sort of accelerate a transition, I guess, to more sustainable well, practices. You can't. Yeah, you do. And I mean, I think we've relied a lot on these sort of agro environmental schemes that are very popular, say, in a European context. So mm-hmm. things like cover cropping and non-crop diversification around flower strips or something mm. are really encouraged under these agro-environmental schemes um, where farmers are financially compensated. Whereas we find things like ecological nutrient management for water management or water quality often are promoted through regulatory mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this double thing happening, but they're all trying to achieve the same goal. So policymakers can leverage both regulatory mechanisms for things around water quality and nutrient management while simultaneously uh, focusing on incentive mechanisms for these other types of diversification practices. And we need to see more and more of that in Canada. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So maybe kind of zooming back in a little bit on the science aspect and looking into the soil. (laughs) Some of your research uh, revolves around studying the rhizosphere and sort of the important interactions that happen in the soil. Um, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what what that is. What is the rhizosphere? You know, in the context of agroecology, are there key knowledge gaps about the rhizosphere processes that could help improve, you know, the management of, of agricultural systems? Great question. I love talking about the rhizosphere. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a term. I, I did my postdoc in France about 12 years ago, and my supervisor there, I mean, he's who really introduced me to the rhizosphere. Mm. And I, it is a one to two millimeters away from the root. That is what the rhizosphere is. Okay. Um, but so much happens there. So I guess the best way to kind of explain what's missing in the knowledge around rhizosphere is um, I'll I'll talk about some recent research that uh, we're doing. So we really have quite a comprehensive amount of information on the beneficial effects of organic or biodiverse agricultural systems on things like yield stability, climate regulation, even soil fertility. But one thing that's really emerged, especially for us in this work we're doing with participatory plant breeding, is that a lot of these modern crop species and genotypes are really adapted to exploit nutrient-rich environments. So just think domestication has happened for crops in these highly intensified, industrialized agricultural systems, and that this domestication process has potentially constrained the crop rhizosphere. So Mm -hmm. as crops have gone through domestication, we expect as you target yield, that it will have subsequent impacts on the blow ground processes and impacts on root traits and the rhizosphere. This then, of course, what we've hypothesized in my research group has subsequent impacts on how crops will do in organic systems. So imagine you have a crop that's been bred for high nutrient environments. Those seeds are then used in an organic system and the rhizosphere has totally changed, that rhizosphere and those root traits are not well adapted to the slow release, slow transformation of nutrients that happen in an organic system with organic Mm. amendments. So we're really seeing this mismatch between seed breeding for industrialized agriculture and the sheer lack of breeding for organic agriculture. And that all plays out in the rhizosphere. So there's actually relatively limited efforts in breeding of crops explicitly for organic systems. And 
Amazingly, most organic farmers in Canada still often use modern varieties that were bred for conventional production systems. So this organic breeding area and thinking about organic breeding and its impacts on the rhizosphere is a relatively unexplored frontier in achieving Mm -hmm. agricultural sustainability in Canada. And that's one of the areas that we're focusing quite heavily on right now in my research group. And we do this in a few ways. We did a data synthesis of global data sets on root traits. And we looked at root trait expression in wild relatives compared Mm -hmm. to their modern genotypes. Mm -hmm. See if we could tease out some of these domestication syndromes below ground. Mm -hmm. And hypothesize what that might mean for the rhizosphere, for things like enzymes in the rhizosphere, microbes in the rhizosphere, and subsequently nutrients in the rhizosphere. And then more recently, we've been working with farmers across Canada, as I mentioned in this breeding program. So we have a huge national data set on above ground and below ground traits of crops across Canada. And we're using um, some novel modeling approaches to understand uh, the complexity of how crops uh, behave in organic agricultural systems across various varieties and what this means for performance or yield. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, it's, it would seem like interesting to look at improving yield in, in organic systems and potentially to you know encourage um, that type of production. But I guess if the seeds are not are maladapted for that that particular environment, it could be challenging. Yeah, and there's more being done on it. You know, there's programs right now in Canada for wheat, oats, soybean. But they're, you know, they're focused on breeding. Our, our angle is really to understand um, the strategies of the plants by using a functional traits approach. So we mm-hmm. think about functional traits of the roots in order to describe how that plant is strategizing in any given environment. And we can feed that expression back into the breeding programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess like big picture, you know, zooming in and then zooming back out again, sort of big picture around kind of sustainable agricultural practices. And we talked a little bit about this already, I guess, like some of the, you know, incentives, you talked about the push and the pull aspect, but can you talk a little bit about um, the barriers that farmers kind of encounter if they're trying to um, adopt sustainable practices? Yeah, so I'd say in a Canadian context, the seed issue that I just described is a big one. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, thinking about access to seeds that are uh, well adapted to organic or to diversified systems is a big barrier. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, matching up these incentive programs to the regulatory mechanisms. So we don't have a lot of that matching. Arguably, we don't have a lot of that matching happening in Southern Ontario and more needs to be done for that, as well as, you know, seeking out farmers who are already making these changes and spotlighting uh, the work that they're doing to make those and test those new approaches to their management and acknowledging that financially and in other ways as um, leaders in the sustainable agricultural arena. But then there's a whole bunch of other major barriers that's a little outside my area of expertise, but there's a lot of policy issues. There's a lot of quirks in our agricultural policies around, you know, 
this, the amount of chickens you can have versus how many you can take to market. So there's very, there's a lot of barriers for starting a smaller scale farm. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work being done in the sort of political ecology world, thinking about the barriers in the American, the North American agricultural landscape to small scale agriculture. Mm -hmm. So what we've been set up to promote large scale agriculture. So not that they're, I'm not valuing large scale versus small scale, but if you want to diversify your farm and you're doing it at a small scale, there's a lot of barriers there. Mm -hmm. So the way the subsidies are set up, the way um, access to land is set up, it's very difficult to start up a new farm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we have fewer and fewer farmers on the land in, in Canada uh, because they're getting larger and larger. And so there's very little access there. And so rethinking those type of barriers um, is, uh, you know, is, is needed and particularly in Southern Ontario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've come across some of that in related to kind of the climate change, climate adaptation and mitigation grant programs for farmers and, you know, small, if the, if the farm is of a small scale, it doesn't qualify to apply for some of these funding and yep. initiatives. So yeah, there's definitely yeah, challenges. I was just, uh, you know, with our new program that we're setting up, understanding transitions. So we're we're setting up a big project right now where we're studying farms as they move along from um, industrialized farm into these practices so that we can study all the various um you know, indicators of these types of transitions. But when speaking to farmers who are joining this network to do this work, they have a lot of these barriers around uh, the paperwork just to get mm. these grants and these funds. I mean, one was saying, you know, you just, I mean, probably one of the best things anyone could do is just hire for each, you know, a group of farmers, just hire someone just to do their grant and fund writing. That's probably like the, the best thing you could actually do for a farmer right now. Because mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. that's where I, they were saying a lot of the administrative load is, is at that point. That's the bottleneck. And um, so that needs to be sorted out and balanced out. We're finding mm -hmm. that same administrative load being a major impediment to farmer well-being in our work with uh, wine growers in France as well. So we have a project where we're developing indicators of well-being for farmers uh, that go beyond the traditional sustainability indicators and start really looking at uh, well-being in a from a biocultural lens. So mm -hmm. what does it mean? What does well-being mean? You know, it is everything from physical health, mental health, mm -hmm. autonomy, but happiness, you know, and aesthetics how you feel on your land on your land but what keeps coming up over and over again is one of the major indicators of ill-being is uh administrative load for small-scale farmers hmm. mm -hmm. maybe carrying on in that's this sort of you know the social aspects of, of farming and agrobiodiversity a lot of the work you've done has involved the application of social network analysis methods and I guess that fits, maybe you've, you can speak a little bit to how that application um, maybe highlights some of these barriers in, in farmer knowledge networks and that kind of thing. Yeah, great. Thanks, Stu. It's, uh, the social networks research is my favorite. Can you have favorites? And yes, you can have favorites in your research <laughs> program. So I yes. love doing this work. It's the one that I mostly still do uh, on my own in my in my research group in the sense that it's, um, 
you know, as you build your research lab, often you have grad students leading most of the work, but this is really the work that I still um, participate in mostly. Mm-hmm. So social networks, um, as everyone knows now, I don't need to do the preamble about social networks anymore, <laughs> <laughs> like I did 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, we use this approach to thinking about the movement of information within agricultural communities. So the diffusion or durability of agrobiodiversity practices on the landscape are really impacted by the configuration of social networks. So how, um, how farmers speak to each other and how the information flows really plays out those patterns, those structural patterns can really either influence the flow of information or act as a barrier. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of consider these patterns of an individual farmer as their social neighborhood. And so those who they have immediate connection with are their direct connections. And of course, those scale out to the larger community and to other more formal ties to things like extension agents or buyers or um you know, seed companies. So you can have this sort of formal networks happening and then these more informal networks happening. And we know that (laughs) these social transactions between farmers and various actors um, can influence the advancement or weakening of sustainable agricultural practices. So this has Mm -hmm. kind of been showed over and over again. And that these interactions are really central to successful innovation systems Mm -hmm. at the farm scale. Mm So we really know that broadly um, the extension literature points to the essential role of social networks in the transmission of new information um, via formal sources through social learning or through kin ties or friendships or other informal sources. So there's this real mix. You can think about it, this mix of bridging ties. So those ties that go beyond someone's close network to say new information from an extension agent or from a researcher or some other um, Mm -hmm. sort of external source to these bonding ties that happen between uh, farmers that really build trust. And that's where you can really see the flow of information around, you know, adoption of agrobiodiversity practices. Mm -hmm. So we're really interested in studying these kind of um, boundary spanning farmers, the ones who do these big jumps outside with these bridging ties versus the role of these bonding ties and how these farmers act as kernels within the community to disseminate information. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of our work actually maps out the social networks of farmers to start seeing trends in how information is flowing, where those barriers are and where information is really being lubricated within a network and and really uh, focusing in on those as pathways of information flow to enhance these types of transformations. Right. And is there anything like a sort of typology of network forms across different geographies or anything like that? Yeah. So we do a lot of work on typologies, like what, you know, are there any patterns to all of this? And I would say from our work, um, you know, you really find this relationship between kind of this like medium density network so if it's too dense, if you've got too many bonding ties, there's not a lot of room for new information and things can get a bit stagnant. Mm. If it's too loose, there's no trust and there's no mm. bonds. And so mm. information tends to not flow. So there's this kind of middle ground um, where you have typically a few centralized actors 
who are quite active in bringing in new information, and then this sort of medium density of ties around those actors. And this can really lead to kind of um, a good flow of information that then, and not even the flow of information, but then the adoption of practices because of this trust and bonding ties. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And another field that you've moved into recently is the world of urban agriculture. Can you tell us about that a little bit? For sure. So that project is really new to me as well. I'm really excited about it. So um, we have an NSERC Create, which is one of these training Mm -hmm. programs. Uh, So people have come together from engineering, um, from landscape architecture, and then from environmental science and biology to understand uh, the role of green infrastructure in cities and how they confer various ecosystem services. Um, And my main area is thinking about that as um, green roofs and the production of food as an ecosystem service from green roofs. Mm -hmm. So there's a real, as you guys probably know, rising interest in urban agriculture and relocalizing uh, food within Mm. cities. And really green roofs offer this untapped potential for both crops and citizen engagement in achieving food security, access, and resiliency. Mm -hmm. Toronto is one of the first cities in the world to enact a green roof bylaw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have about 700 green roofs in Toronto, but the vast majority of them are extensive green roofs. So here's the difference. Extensive green roofs have very shallow engineered substrates with, so they require minimal irrigation and they're really targeted to provide one ecosystem service, which is really around stormwater capture and building temperature regulation. Mm-hmm. So they're very quite harsh growing conditions. And the majority of green roofs in Toronto are these extensive green roofs. And they have this uh, species called sedum that mm-hmm. is planted. And this is a really stress tolerant species. So these are very low maintenance green roofs. Uh, on the opposite end, you've got intensive green roofs, which are much deeper um, soils. You'll see if anyone's been on the Carrot Common green roof, they have more um, intensive green roofs. So you can grow crops easily because you've got a lot of soil. So that's all been done. That's people work on that area. Our interest is whether we can transition these extensive green roofs into some sort of crop production. So Mm -hmm. can we layer on ecosystem services onto these green roofs via crop production? And what do we need to do to um, reduce the environmental constraints in these extensive green roofs to do that? Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do right now is use sedum as a nurse crop. So basically sedum can hopefully help ameliorate these uh, stressful conditions around water and, and soil fertility in these green roofs so that we can um, have intercropping for uh, crop production. Now, will this produce a ton of crops? Probably not. But what it could do is produce specialty crops in very localized environments that are culturally appropriate and use green roofs that are already in place. So there's a lot of benefits if we can sort of transition these away from just purely sedum into some sort of mixed sedum crop production. Mm -hmm. So right now we're testing beans, Mm -hmm. um, kale, parsley, 
Mm-hmm. And um, we've also tested about 20 other different crops on these green roofs. Wow. Ooh. And so these these varieties do okay with a pretty shallow soil layer or like what is what have the results been like so far? <laughs> yeah, the beans seem to be doing pretty good actually. Last year they mm. did all right. Um, we're gonna we're gonna find out this year from last year's data and this year's data whether the sedum is actually acting as a competitor or a facilitator. Mm. So we had mm. hypothesized that it would act as a facilitator and we're trying to figure out the the optimal designs to achieve that. So it's really about having sedum, you know, reduce soil temperatures and sort of hold water as a way to enhance these soil conditions, these substrate conditions. We're also doing treatments with worm castings. So as a vermicompost to add some organic material that could actually be um, produced on the roof. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. So maybe before we kind of transition to talk a little bit about climate change, which is something, of course, that I'm super interested in. But just like, just kind of maybe your final thoughts around kind of thinking about soils and soil health in in agriculture. Um, And I guess we were wondering, you know, when when people think about sustainability and conservation, is soil health taken into account, you know, sufficiently from your perspective as someone who kind of studies the soils and, and gets down to that rhizosphere and thinks about those interactions? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would start off by saying, I think soils have become cool. <laughs> great. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, I mean, and I can actually track it when I think about the number of students in my soil science class, right? So mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. you know, they were, soils was something you had to take, you know, you had a lot of engineering students coming in because they needed to think about different substrates and, and some ecologists, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And now soils really, you know, people talk about soils, you know, outside of academia, people talk about soil health, people know about soils in their gardens, like soils have become very interesting for people. And I love that. I love that soils are, is soil is finally where it should be <laughs> as a topic of conversation. So that's really great. And uh, yeah, it is, you know, this area of research is more impactful now than ever, because we need to know how soils intersect in particular with for instance, the sustainable development goals. So when we mm. think about the SDGs, you know, they really frame global sustainable development agenda for the next, you know, well now mm. eight years. Mm. And a lot of the most pressing research agendas in the SDGs intersect with soil science. Mm-hmm. So when we think about ending hunger, when we think about the environment and climate change, soils play a role in all of these targets. So we really see the SDGs clearly pointing to the critical role of soils as a pillar for addressing many of these socioeconomic and environmental issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've been working in in some of these these locations, like in Ghana, you said 20 years, and in Costa Rica, about a decade. And so I'm curious to know whether you've seen any impacts of climate change in these systems that you've been working in and, and what does that look like um, at the moment? Yeah. I mean, the impacts of climate change, of course, um, directly impacting the systems I work in, it's mostly through just very unpredictable rainfall regimes right now. So where I work in 
West Africa is very much under the intertropical convergence zone. So any shifts or weakening of that zone are having major impacts on rainfall patterns in that region. In Central America, it's most as a lot of intersecting issues around climate change and major disease outbreaks around coffee and also mm -hmm. shifting cultivation zones for major tree crops in Central America. So those are the impacts that, that I would say I see in, in fields. But, you know, promoting these diversified farming systems really has, a, has an impact on moderating these effects of climate change. You know, agriculture has this role of contributing to climate change and being able to mitigate climate change. It's got this dual role. And so, you know, we really focus our efforts on thinking about how to design agricultural systems that can really promote ecosystem functioning that leads to less reliance on chemical inputs, which has subsequent impacts on greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. that requires less reliance on irrigation, which means less stress, less water stress, but at simultaneously can enhance carbon storage. So trying to target these sort of mitigating factors as well as these services at the same time and designing for all of these services at once. And pretty much as um, I'm sure Stu can tell you because he knows well, that we pretty much have a well-described you know, theory and ecology that higher biodiversity ensures greater ecosystem functionality. And so by transferring those ideas to agricultural systems, we are seeing these benefits of increasing diversity from the plant to the farm to the landscape scale. Mm -hmm. So transforming these sort of more, I don't want to say conventional because that kind of makes them sound like they, they hold the status quo. Maybe they mm -hmm. don't. The mm -hmm. industrial agricultural systems and migrating them towards these more biologically complex systems offers some of these mitigating factors for the impacts of climate change, as mm -hmm. well as provides some of these opportunities for carbon storage. Um, and so we're really interested in designing for this and um, documenting these transitions as we move towards these more biologically complex systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe I'll just ask you kind of a follow-up question about something you mentioned right off the top, starting to think about landscape form and, you know, the fact that um, traditional farms have kind of been flattened, you know, for the purposes of irrigation and that sort of thing. And I know that flooding in the spring can be a really big hazard for, um, for getting the planting season going and stripping nutrients away from the farm. So do you, do you see, um, you know, this, these earthworks that you mentioned and sort of building the landscape back as also a, a flood mitigation strategy um, in the face of climate change? Definitely. So we, I just spent last week on a farm that has these beautiful swales. So mm. these are earthworks that work with the topography of the landscape. So they basically funnel water into ponds, mm -hmm. but then allow those to then seep more slowly. So it, it impacts, um, you know, the basically it reduces soil erosion. So instead of all of that soil flooding off the field, it's getting mm -hmm. settled into low lying areas and settling down. Or if barriers are put in to create ponds. So this type of earthworks or the creation of swales are, I'm, I'm I love this new area of work we've gotten into because you can really see, you know, on a landscape, just how much we haven't utilized the benefits of the landscape for water management. Mm -hmm. We've actually been working against it for mm -hmm. so long. 
And really to see farmers taking these very radical changes to their land for restoration is really amazing. And Mm so, you know, thinking about incorporating swales and berms or terraforming to work with the farm scale topography paired with well-established diversification practices, such as perennials or cover crops or agroforestry, really offers this like wholly unique approach to enhancing carbon storage, but as well as can for controlling for extreme uh, weather events. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Mm. Just to kind of wrap up today, Marnie, um, you mentioned a sustainable food and farming futures cluster that you're heading up. Um, so maybe you can tell us about, you know, some of the, the exciting work you guys are, are doing with that. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, so the cluster just got off the ground and I'm, I'm actually leading it with uh, Professor Jayetta Sharma in humanities. So we have this amazing transdisciplinary team going from all the way from crop biology through agroecology and urban agriculture, all the way over to you know just culinary infrastructure in Scarborough. Mm. So really oh. spanning you know, everything, when we say sustainable food and farming, we really mean, you know, from all uh, sides of production and consumption. So it's really an exciting opportunity here at UTSC. We have so much emerging infrastructure here right now, thinking about sustainable agriculture, thinking about peri-urban agriculture, um, thinking about food systems and uh, equity within food systems. And so this cluster is really going to integrate sort of these novel and actionable social and natural science research agendas for food systems, sustainability, and community forward food ways research. So we're just getting off the ground. A lot of what we're doing right now is uh, thinking about the vision of the cluster. We're trying to bring in postdocs and grad students to work on these areas because training is a big part of what we're going to do in the cluster. Um, And we're going to have our first symposium this year to bring in all of our community partners to really listen to our community partners about the direction that the cluster should take when thinking about our research agenda. Mm -hmm. Great. Sounds exciting. Yeah. Well, Marnie, it's such a huge breadth of fields that you work in and you, your passion for all these things is is palpable. You know, it's, it's <laughs> contagious. So we want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and share all the work you've done and your visions for the future. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed it. 